And I want you to take a Bible if you have a copy of God's Word, whatever form that may take tonight, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Ms. Amanda and I talked before the service. I've discovered that wherever I go, if I'm asked to preach, I'm just going to preach about Jesus. It's hard to go wrong when you preach about Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 16, we have the most important question that Jesus himself ever asked or that any disciple of Christ ever answered. And you know the question, I'll bet you already do. Uh, it's a simple question, who is Jesus? A, a 10-year-old at Champion Forest Baptist Church could hit it out of the park. Now, that's a baseball illustration. Do you know baseball? Okay, it's, it's, hit it, it's a home run. A 10-year-old could do that. It's so simple. And yet, the question and the answer is so profound and so incredibly important that we, we wouldn't want to underestimate the complexity of that question or of the eternal significance of your answer. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Don't overlook the significance or the practical application I hope to finish with of our answer because it is a very practical question with a very practical answer. And who is Jesus? Well, it might be better to ask first who was Jesus, the historical Jesus as he's sometimes referred to. And no one really doubts that a man named Jesus actually lived. He was born in Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago, that he was a carpenter's son in Nazareth, that he attracted large crowds and followers of people. He did many good things. He helped a lot of people. His life's and teaching had a great impact, a tremendous impact on the world, even to this day. Of course, here we are tonight. And yes, of course, no one disputes that he died on a cross outside of Jerusalem for the crime of blasphemy if you're a Jewish leader or treason if you were one of the Roman leaders of the day. But while these facts are significant, to be sure... Those aren't the facts that set him apart. As many people could have fit the bill of someone with those characteristics. But Jesus isn't just significance because of what he did. What makes what he did matter to us today is who he was. Because it's not just the work of Christ, it is the person and work of Christ that makes all the difference. And so tonight I want to take you to this text and ask you the most important question ever asked. I want you to give an answer tonight. It will be the most important answer you ever give. Who is Jesus? And who is he to you? And I'll tell you why that's such an important question. I hope you'll write this down. I'm going to say it a few times to help you remember. You cannot be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. Can I say it again? Are you writing? You must have a photographic memory. You cannot be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. Of course, there are many people who would answer the question, as many have, that Jesus was a good man. And he was a great teacher, and he was a leader, yes, a fine example for sure, for all to follow. But many will say right on the heels of that that he was not God. And some will even go as far as to say that not only was he not God, he himself never claimed to be God. The secular mind says he was just a man. Good, maybe great, but not God. The Hindu, a wise man, perhaps even an incarnation of God like Christian. The Buddhist, not God, enlightened, yes, like Buddha, but more as an example for all to follow. The Muslim says he was only a man, a prophet, yes, but inferior to the prophet Muhammad, and he did not die on the cross, according to the Muslim mindset. The Mormon says he was not pre-existent God, but that he was a man who became one of many gods, and you can too. Jehovah's Witness says he was Michael the archangel, created being, not God, but an angel who became a man. And you might expect some of such conclusions, 
uh, from non-Christian groups and doctrines and theologies. But it's surprising to me how often we come across this question and a wrong answer even under the umbrella of so-called Christianity. I experienced that for my first time as a freshman in college at a Baptist university, one that was racked with liberalism, except they didn't put that in the brochure. So when I applied, it was accepted. I attended there as a ministerial student at a Baptist college, and my religion professor told us in the first week of class that we had to unlearn all of the wrong teaching that we had learned about this man named Jesus. My religion professor in a Baptist university said all of the miracles that are ascribed to Jesus were given to him after his life by his followers who worshipped him. He said the task at hand through education and learning was to strip away all of the myths, fairy tales, and fables and get down to the real historical Jesus. I want to just tell you honestly how that messed me up. It's a popular notion. You may remember the Da Vinci Code. Dan Brown wrote the gospel, according to Dan Brown. You may remember the Da Vinci Code, one of the top ten best-selling novels of all time. Nearly a hundred million Books have been sold in nearly 50 languages, made into a movie millions worldwide watched and heard this gospel, which is not a gospel according to Dan Brown. I still remember the quote from the end of the movie. Do you remember Robert Langdon, the star, played by Tom Hanks, you remember? And near the end of the movie, he said this, and I quote, Jesus was just a man like me, he said. He was not God. This is the conclusion of the whole movie, the point, the climax, the moment when we're all leaning in to learn something that will change our lives. And the star of the show says, he was not God, but what does it really matter, he said. What does it really matter? I can answer that question. It matters because you cannot be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. And Mr. Brown was certainly wrong about Jesus, and so was my freshman religion class professor. So who is Jesus really? Well, the scripture in Matthew 16, you found it by now, asked the question. He said this, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. It's clear by now, by their answer, the people have been watching and they were talking amongst themselves about who this Jesus is. And the popular responses that they relayed to him are all positive, very flattering answers. Not offensive at all. Even to be associated with some of those amazing prophets of God's word, preachers, would have been flattering for sure. The popular responses are all positive. The problem is, of course, the popular answers are all wrong because they are incomplete. Therefore, they're wrong. This is one of those times when close enough isn't close enough. And when the answer that is almost right is still the wrong answer. Because with this question, we're going to have to be more specific, more precise, and more exact. So Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? The popular response was incomplete, and so it was incorrect. Now it's time for a personal response. Personal 
Because maybe his followers would be more than fans. Maybe they had seen enough to know by now exactly who Jesus was. And in fact, Simon Peter replied, you see it in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, by the way, you can say what you want to about Simon Peter. He probably earned and deserves whatever it is you will say of him in summary, but credit him here because his answer was complete and so his answer was correct. The popular answer was incomplete and incorrect. Peter's answer was complete and therefore correct. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't figure this out. You're really not that smart. This is by way of revelation. My Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. In other words, Peter, good job, buddy. You got that straight from above. God himself has informed you as to my true identity. The Father in heaven has told you the answer to the question of who am I? And before I go any further, I want to say it still works that way. That studying the facts and the history and coming to an intellectual or academic conclusion is not what brings you to the correct answer to this very complex question. But it is the revelation of God's Holy Spirit to illuminate your mind and to open and warm your heart so that you can conceive of and believe in spiritual truth. So I want to ask you right now, wherever you are, wherever you've come from, whatever the condition of your heart, whatever the shape of your mind, no matter how predisposed you are already against Jesus as Messiah, Son of God, I want to ask you if you're willing to just simply crack open the door of your heart and open your mind and ask God if he's real. That's all you got to do. Just say, God, if you're real, if this is true tonight, I want you to show me. That's all I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to believe right now. I'm not, I'm not asking you to be convinced right now. I'm just saying that if this is truth revealed from above, that tonight you consider more than just the facts or the history or the academics of this story and of the history of this man, I want you to look for more tonight than the historical Jesus. I want to see if you'd be willing tonight to consider the possibility that Jesus is in fact who he said he was, therefore is who he says he is. I want you to consider with me tonight the claims of Jesus. I want to build a case, if you will, for who this man really was, Jesus, the Son of Man. In this very text, there are at least three claims to deity. The three statements that we must first consider. Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man. Who do others say that I, the, the Son of Man, am? He's referring here to himself as the Son of Man. It was his favorite self-designation more than 80 times in the Gospels. We hear Jesus referring to himself by this title. It comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And in that context and in that text, it is that one who comes as a man, but is given the kingdom and the glory that only belongs to God. So if Jesus self-identifies as the one whose kingdom and glory it is for all of eternity, he must be saying, hey, I'm that guy, the son of man. He says, the Christ, that's Peter's a response, you are the Christ, the Christ Christos. That's the Greek word for Messiah. It's not just his last name. You know, I'm David Fleming. He's not Jesus Christ. He's Jesus the Christ. That is Messiah or Israel's hope, a descendant of David, a warrior king, a spiritual shepherd for Israel. The early Christians believed that Jesus was that Messiah, the Christ. That explains why they called him Jesus Christ and themselves Christians or, or little Christ or followers of Christ because they believed he was Israel's promised Messiah. 
Some claim, however, that even if Jesus claimed to be Messiah, that in itself doesn't make him divine. But I'll tell you this, Isaiah thought so. Because when Isaiah in chapter 9 talked of the child, he referred to him as the everlasting father. So I think it's erroneous to conclude that even though he might have been Messiah, it's not a claim to deity, but I would ensure you that Isaiah the prophet, who spoke of Messiah, saw him as the eternal father. So the Son of Man, Christ, the Son of God. That's the third designation here. And more than a Son of God, the Son of God, meaning unique status and unique relationship. We, we read about this in Matthew 11, chapter 27, that there is a unique Father-Son relationship, and He, Jesus, Son of Man, Christ, Son of God. Now, I want you to know this is a really good time for Jesus to shut down any erroneous thinking about Himself. I mean, if his disciples were, as my professor said, just going to come along and give him these titles after the fact, here we have in the text them assigning to him these three designations which all reflect his identity as, as deity. This would have been a good time for Jesus to say, guys, really? Y'all are going over the top here. Calm down. I'm just a man. This would have been a great time for Jesus to correct this erroneous thinking if, in fact, it was erroneous. But what do we hear Jesus say? Well said, Peter. You didn't figure this out, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And so we see together then that Jesus is, in this text, the Son of Man, the Christ, and the Son of the living God. And it's not corrected by Jesus. Therefore, it is affirmed as fact by Jesus himself. And I know if you have an inquiring mind, you say, well, that's just one example. Are there more? Yes, thank you for asking. I appreciate that. If we're going to search out for more evidence to back it up, let's flesh it out. Let me run some other considerations by you this evening. For example, consider his interaction with John the Baptist at the very beginning of his ministry. When John the Baptist is quoting a series of Isaiah's prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah, including Isaiah 43, he's referring to Jesus when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was playing the part of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, when Jesus would come after him, this one whose sandals he was not worthy to tie. John the Baptist attributed deity as Messiah to this one we know as Jesus. And Jesus affirmed that connection in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, that he was in fact the one coming after John, preparing the way in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Consider next what Jesus said and did throughout his entire ministry. Like in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, when he said that he was more than a good man or a good teacher because there's no one good but God. So if you're saying I'm good, are you saying I'm God? Interesting conversation, like in John chapter 8, verse 46, that he was in fact without sin. Who convicts me of sin, he said. He said, I dare you. In the States, we'd say double dare you. In Texas, we say double dog dare you to identify one single sin that I've ever committed. Now, who in their right mind would ever say to a crowd of people, find something wrong with me, I dare you? And not with their wife sitting in the room. <laughs> who would convict me of sin? Jesus said, Luke chapter 5 and 7, said that he could forgive sin. Now, who could forgive sin but God himself? And yet Jesus forgave sin because he is God. John chapter 10 verse 36, he said the miracles that he did were evidence of his divinity, believe the works that they saw and experienced for themselves. And if we have just a moment, let me walk you through some of the most compelling evidence of Jesus' own claims to deity and divinity, and they're known as the I am's of Christ. 
John 6, I am the living bread which came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now, let me just tell you something. If you were to stand up in a crowded place and say that to a group of people, they would lock you up in the Tower of London. <laughs> Crazy people say things like that. John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. Who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. John 8, 23, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Jesus said that. John 8, 24, he said to those that you will die in your sins for you do not believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. John 8, 58, most assuredly I say to you, I love this one. You ready for this? He said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, you don't have to be an English major or even make A's in English class to figure out the twist on tense in that statement before Abraham was, I am. That's an eternal I am. I've always been here. Take me back to that burning bush experience when Moses said to God, so who do I tell him sent me? And God said, I am. Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. John 10, 9, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. He'll go in and find pasture. John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. John 10, in verse 36, he says, I am the son of God. In response to their accusations of blasphemy, John 11, 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. Who says that? And remains free and still draws crowds of people. John 15, 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. If you want to ask the question, did Jesus ever claim to be God? There are an awful lot of I am's to answer your question, who is Jesus? Consider his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, would you? It's not a random event. It's a strategic statement. It's in deliberate fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. When Jesus received the crowd's adoration and accepted the shouts of the people for their promised king, that's who he was, their conquering, coming Messiah. Consider his trial with his life on the line. Now, you know, people change their tunes, their stories when their lives are on the line. They get really honest really quickly. And what did Jesus say when the high priest asked him in Mark 14, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with clouds in the heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is blasphemy? He claimed to be equal to God. He claimed to be God. What is your decision, the high priest said? And they all condemned him as deserving death. I'll tell you this. If people will say, did Jesus think he was God? I'll tell you this. Those who condemned him to death thought that he thought he was God. That doesn't make him God, but it clears the question, doesn't it, that Jesus never claimed to be God if he's put on trial for his life now and all he has to say is, is, oh yeah, about that God thing, never mind. But instead he goes to the cross, refusing to recant of the fact of his person, not just his work, I am. Jesus clearly accused of believing that he was their Messiah. There's no reasonable doubt that he died for any other reason but blasphemy, that's what landed him in front of Pilate and his court. Consider the way he died. My goodness, who prays for the forgiveness of those who beat him viciously and hung him on a cross? I mean, do you realize the, the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus on the cross of Calvary? At what point do you look at those people and curse them? 
At what point do you blaspheme God for letting this happen to you? At what point do you turn your back on the eternal? At what point do you say to those people who have put you through such agony what you really want to say to them if you're like me? Who says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? And by the way, Jesus never did anything by accident. So quoting from Psalm 22, a strongly messianic tone of song describing the whole experience of the cross, Jesus said from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Consider the greatest evidence of all, his resurrection. Because I don't know about you or how it works here in England, but if a guy says I'm going to be crucified and on the third day rise again, and does it? That's what we call in the States a mic-dropping moment. You just drop the microphone and walk off stage. Case closed. Discussion is over. He's proved it beyond all shadow of a doubt. Go sit down. You have nothing else to say. When you say, I'll be crucified, buried on the third day, I'll arise again. And you do. And you appear to your disciples. And you appear to hundreds of people over 40 days. And you appear to more than 500 people at one time. And the gospel writers wrote that down in such a speedy manner. They used names of people who were there and saw him and said, Go ask them if you don't believe me. The most compelling evidence of all was there he was on the third day, alive. And he is still alive today. In short, it's clear that Jesus knew and understand who he was. His disciples knew and understand who he was. The early church knew and understand who he was. And the written record of the Bible clearly presents Jesus in this way. That Jesus is more than just a man, more than a good man. He was God, man. God, man. And this is important for you to know and understand because you cannot be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. Jesus is God. He is the great I am. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He is Logos, much more than the message from God. He was the message of God because he was and is God. He's the pre-existent word of God in flesh, the glory of God on display. That's why in Colossians chapter 2, 9, we read that in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily in him. He is the originator and the creator and the author and the finisher. He's the second person in the Trinity, the incarnate Christ deity wrapped in the flesh of humanity, sinless, spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You better help me here now. I came a long way to tell you this. That makes him Isaiah's suffering servant, our substitute and all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin and our Savior, rescuer, redeemer, reconciler, and that makes him the one mediator between God and man and our great high priest who gives us bold access to the very throne of God. And yes, as he said in himself in John 14, 6, I am you thought I was going to skip that one, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And with that, he drew a bold and unmistakable line in the sand for all of us to consider. Because listen to me carefully now. You cannot follow him because you believe he's a good man or a great teacher or a compelling moral example. If you don't believe that he is who he said he was and is, you shouldn't follow him at all. In fact, you should keep your distance from all of those of us who do follow him because you'd have to conclude that this Jesus was a liar who deliberately deceived the masses and we all, we ourselves are among the deceived. 
Or you might consider that he was a lunatic who himself was deceived. And we are equally deceived by this one man's delusions. This should sound a bit to you like a countryman of yours, C.S. Lewis. Who, while this illustration may be tired, it's still true. That Jesus cannot be a great moral teacher. And I quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He cannot be a great moral teacher if he was not God. His own claims about himself would be immoral if they were not true. You cannot admit him as a great teacher, a good example to follow, if you do not accept his, complain, his claims to be God. Because Jesus is either, according to C.S. Lewis, a liar, a lunatic, or he is who he says he is, and he is Lord. Which leads me to one more point in my conclusion. Can you say an amen for a conclusion? <laughs> in my church back home, a conclusion means nothing. It's just a polite thing to say. <laughs> Many of you answer this question correctly because you answer it completely. That Jesus is a good man, a great moral example, a fine leader, world changer, whose ministry and mission impacted millions and millions throughout the generations. Even to this day, here we are. You got the right answer, but I want to challenge you that the right answer is not only something that we come to a conclusion of mentally or academically or even spiritually in and of itself. Because the answer that we give must be the answer that we live. Now, let me quote one of my fellow pastors back at Champion Force. Come in here, let me talk to you for a minute. Let me, let me tell you something. I really want you to lean in here and really listen to me. That's Pastor Avery. They're all giggling over there. I want you to consider the reasoning now. If he was who he said he was, then he still is. Amen. God is unchanging. He was and he is the Lord, but we stumble, don't we, if we say he is king of kings and lord of lords, if he is not truly king of kings and lord of all to me today and to you. It's the most compelling answer that we can give when asked the question, who is Jesus, is this, Jesus is my king and Jesus is my Lord and the Savior of my soul. You see, if we make the case that Jesus is in fact Lord, then let our lives be the most compelling argument we make and the most compelling evidence we portray. What a shame it'd be to win an argument as to the identity of Christ, but lose the opportunity to lead that person to Christ. And so, Jesus as Savior and Lord gives us the opportunity to demonstrate our love for God and His love for the one we're arguing with. And to model what it looks like to truly live under the lordship of Jesus Christ in victory and in love. And to introduce that person to Jesus so that they too can know him like we do. A fellow professor and friend and pastor in Houston calls this the ultimate apologetic. William Craig says at the conclusion of his work, Reasonable Faith, that the most effective and practical apologetic for the Christian faith that I know of We'll help you to win more persons to Christ than all the other arguments in your apologetic arsenal put together. The ultimate apologetic involves two relationships. Your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Brothers and sisters, if we can get that right, we will give a living witness and a powerful example of who Jesus is to us. 
But when we live like he's only Lord of the Bible, or only the Lord of history, or only the Lord of my church, or only the Lord of my Sundays, or only the Lord of my quiet time in the morning, until Jesus is Lord of all, we'd have to ask ourselves truly the honest question is, is Jesus Lord at all? If he is Lord at all, then he is Lord of all. Is he the Lord of your all? And that's the grand conclusion and the ultimate application of our apologetics, isn't it? Because an apologetics of the mind is good and necessary, but we need to continually develop, model, and share an apologetics of the heart and of the hand and of our whole lives. Who is Jesus? Of course, we should tell them all who Jesus is. But it might help if we also show them all who Jesus is. Because Jesus is Lord And oh, by the way, he wants to be your Savior. And this is so important, class. (laughs) There will be a test. And you will take that test, having your whole life to prepare. And on that test is a single question, and the greater is God himself, and he does not grade on a curve. And the answer you give is the grade you will get. And the single answer on the greatest examination that you will ever take is this question. Who is Jesus to you? Be careful how you answer. Because you cannot be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. Would you bow with me for a moment all over the room? Could we just in the balcony take a moment to pray? I just want to pray for you and then invite you to make the most important decision with regard to the most important question and the most important answer Who is Jesus? Father, I pray that even as we ask at the beginning of this message, that you would, as you did for Peter, reveal to us from on high truth. And Lord, wake up our soul and stir our hearts and give us the faith, Lord, to believe all that is written about who you are. I pray that for every person in this room, some who have come with a friend or a family member, some who have come because they didn't have anything else to do, some who have come on purpose because they're really concerned They're really interested. They're really searching. I pray for every person in this room that right now you will turn on the light of the gospel in their heart and in their mind and show them, Lord, in Jesus' name, truth. I pray that for you, my friend, right now. This is not about religion. You understand that. This is not about rules and rituals and routines. This is not about checking boxes to feel better about yourself or to satisfy your conscience or to get your parents or your spouse off your back. This is a moment in time that you will make the most important decision of your entire life. Here's the question. Who is Jesus to you? I've prayed for you. I've asked God to turn the light of faith on in your heart to allow you to believe by faith. But he leaves the decision to you. So right now, my friend, will you answer the question in the affirmative? Who is Jesus? Will you say by faith, even if you don't have all the answers, even if you don't have it all figured out, even if you don't have it all put in order and buttoned down and placed, even if you still 
have lingering questions. Will you just simply by faith confess tonight, Jesus is Lord? Because you know, the Bible says that if we're willing to confess Jesus is Lord, we can be saved, which means our sin forgiven. And we can receive by faith the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ, His Son. And we all need that because we're all sinners. Let's get real. But tonight, if you're willing to believe and to confess Jesus is Lord, and tonight you can be saved. I want to ask you right now, still heads bowed and eyes closed. Hope you'll permit me just another moment. I know it's late. But all over this building tonight, the Spirit of God is moving and working. Would you be willing tonight to confess Jesus is Lord? And, and if you know the Lord and you're a Christian, you've been born again, then, then sit this out for just a moment, all right? I'm going to give you a moment to confess that by faith as we live it out in a moment. But for those of you who are here tonight and you're considering the claims of Christ and in this moment you are recognizing the truth of the gospel and you're willing to confess now Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart, you are courageous, you are not ashamed, and you know what this means. Would you right now, just by faith and with courage, raise your hand? We have some prayer partners some decision time encouragers and want to just identify you and be able to pray for you. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Other hands, don't be ashamed. Just raise your hand up really high. You came in here tonight. You had no idea why you were coming. You were checking the box. You were meeting somebody's expectation. You were curious. Do you have a hand in the air? Jesus is Lord. I've never been willing to say that before. I've never understood enough to want to say that before. I've been doubtful and skeptical and critical before. I thought this whole thing was just about history and humanity and, and, and religion, but I, I recognize tonight there's this something about this person that he is who he said he was. Jesus is Lord. Would you raise your hand? Others in the room? Thank you. Yes. Come on, raise your hand. Don't be shy. Don't be ashamed. Jesus is Lord. That's something we are courageously to confess and never be ashamed. Amen. Thank you. And in a moment, our prayer partners and these uh, Decision time encouragers. I want to spend some time with you to encourage you, give you some information to pray for you, and perhaps to answer other questions you might have. In fact, right now they're standing around the room. Pastor Gabriel's coming. I want to just give you an opportunity to connect to one of these who's standing and just to spend another few moments. Maybe you haven't made up your mind yet, but maybe you'd be willing tonight just to say, I'm open, and could we talk a little bit more about this? Could I ask a few questions? Would you show me in God's Word what this all means? Hey, look this way. I am so proud to tell you tonight that you don't have to have a hope-so salvation. Jesus died on the cross, was buried and raised again so that you could have a no-so salvation. 1 John 5, 13, these things have been written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that, you ready? That you should know that you are saved. Now, now for all of us, listen to me, we answer that question with the easy answer. You learned it in fourth grade, or you, you learned it in kindergarten, or you, or you learned it in college, or you learned it at the, the feet of your, of your mother, or your dad, or your pastor. You, you gave the right answer, but here's what I want to ask you to do before we close. I want you just to take a moment and just consider. Is my life consistent with my answer? And is my witness to Christ one that clearly proclaims the truth of who he is and all he has done? Because you know people like I do who are wrong about Jesus and therefore not right with God. Could we all just pray over ourselves right now, over this church, my church back home, each of our lives? Father, I pray for each of us. Thank you for those who are considering your claims and considering who you are and, and turning to trust in you. I thank you for salvation, the gift of God, and, and for these who are willing tonight to receive what you have freely given through Christ. 
And I pray for all of us tonight who have already received that gift and who have confessed and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord. But I pray that our lives will truly reflect the confession of our lips. And, and I pray, Lord, over each of our lives that, that our lives will be a living witness as to the Lordship of Christ. That no one will be able to, to accuse us or to charge us of living in any way that is inconsistent with the gospel or with who you are in our lives. Because you are Lord. And you are Lord of all. So tonight, again, perhaps there are some areas of our lives where we ought to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. I don't know what that is. I can't know, but I promise you this. Uh, the Lord knows. And if there's anything tonight that's not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, and I know we're going to have a prayer time, and Pastor Gabriel's going to come and lead us through that, but hey, listen, could I just challenge you, encourage you lovingly tonight? If your answer is Jesus is Lord, then let every area of your life reflect that statement. And remember, you cannot be wrong about Jesus and be right with God.